Good to see you out there. I invite you to turn in your scripture to John chapter 7, verses 53 through 8, 11. We'll look at that in just a moment. As you're turning, our kids, children's church age may be dismissed to children's church. want to welcome back our college students. Glad they had a great retreat. They are all currently awake, as is Brad. And I know our college students would love if you went to Brad sometime this week and just said three words to him, shut it down. And that is uh, a memory they have from this week that is a completely inside joke with them and Brad that uh, we just brought you all in on. But uh, we're grateful for our college students. I love the energy, love the excitement, love the fun that they bring to Dixie Baptist Church. And uh, we are grateful that you all have loved on them as well and that they are such a welcome part of our church. So, uh, and we are grateful for Brad and Carrie and uh, Amanda and those that work with our college students as well, Josh and Natalie. Also, I, I kind of lump you all in sometimes, but you all are no longer college students, guys. So uh, you're so much older and wiser now, right, Josh and Natalie? So, uh, but we are grateful for our college students, our ministry. There's a heavy task before me this morning as we look at John 7, 53 through 8, 11. I do not approach the task in front of me lightly today. Um, my great desire is that there would be light and not heat as a result of this sermon, that there would be clarity and not confusion. You see, if you have the outline in front of you, the pink piece of paper, that my re desired results of today's sermon would be that you deepen your trust in the truthfulness of God's Word and also that you would delight in God's mercy that doesn't condemn but transform those who believe in Jesus. I'll describe that task and the challenge before me more. I'm going to read to you from John 7:53 through verses 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let us pray. Father, it is with great humility that I come to this sermon this morning. It is with an admission that I am insufficient for the task in front of me and of myself. O oh, Spirit of God, I pray that you would move through the preaching of this sermon. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would work in the heart and ear of every listener. Lord, I do pray 
that the results of this sermon would be a deeper trust in the truthfulness of your word, a deeper delight in the mercy of God among those who have come to Christ, and a fresh delight in the mercy of God for those who have not yet experienced it. Father, help me in my comments. Strengthen me, Spirit. Help me to bring light to this section of John's Gospel. Help me to not bring heat. Father, help me to bring clarity and not confusion. Lord, I fully rely on you. Pray for your work in this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's been around 18 years or so since I took, uh, I think, a new religious movements, uh, new religious movements classes in, in seminary uh, or alternative religious movements in America. I can't remember which one it was. But I still recall the basics of a story that our professor told us. If I'm not mistaken, he came to Christ as an adult without a church background. And he went out to buy a Bible. And he bought a really nice Bible, super cheap. Just talked about he couldn't believe how cheap this Bible was with it being so nice. The reason it was so cheap was the store was selling them that way because nobody would buy those particular Bibles. And the reason is they had left out John 7, 53 through 8, 11 and Mark 16, 9 through 20, as I recall his story. Now, why would that Bible and those who are translating it choose to omit those passages? Well, in each of your Bibles, likely... There's a note similar to mine. In the beginning, uh, or the heading above this story in my Bible says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. So what do we do with it? Right? That's, That's the question. Now, when we, when we look at this story, it is an incredible story about the undeserved mercy of Jesus Christ. And people are really emotionally attached to this story. Now, I also mentioned Mark 16, 9 through 20. I don't think there's the same level of emotional attachment to that story. If you go back to the end of Mark's gospel, you've got things like drinking poison and handling snakes. There's not the same affection for that as this story of Jesus' great mercy to a very guilty woman. So, What do we do with a text that isn't a text? So here's the options that really were before me. Just skip this text, finish up in John 7, 52 last week, and come this week to John 8, verse 12. Or just come to this text today, preach it as I would any other text, and ignore all the controversy surrounding it. Now, my issue with those two options is I feel like I would be ducking something. I feel like I would be hiding something from you. And the reality is we always have truth on our side when it comes to the Bible. And I don't think we have to hide that. Now, I could also preach this text with the caveat that it wasn't originally part of John's gospel. But here's the option that I've landed on. I want to describe the controversy and the situation going on with this passage to you, because I think you can handle it. 
And I want to do so, and this is my, my great desire, in a way that's going to increase, not decrease, your confidence in the certainty of the Word of God in your hands or on your phone before you. I want us to figure out the main point or points of this story and then look at, uh, at Scripture and the character of Jesus and see if this story contradicts or confirms what we know of Jesus in the rest of Scripture. So you can see why I feel like this task is so heavy before me this morning. So usher a one-sentence prayer for me to God, uh, even now, if you would. So here's the, the first question that I've asked. Was this story originally part of John's gospel? In other words, when John wrote down his gospel, was this in there? And the answer is no, it was not. I've brought a few commentaries in here, and these are things us preachers read to try to help us understand a passage and that sort of thing when we preach it. And none of them would say this is part of John's original gospel. Now, D.A. Carson, when he comments on this, he leaves it in the flow of the commentary in terms of the chronology. But he calls it an excursus, meaning a detailed discussion about it. Now, in this one, Leon Morris, he does not put it in the flow of comments on John's gospel in terms of chronology. He puts it in an appendix in the back when he discusses it. Uh, Carter and Redberg, I've quoted them to you before. In their commentary, they don't even mention it. It's not in the flow of the comments. It's not in an appendix that I could find. Uh, they do not mention it. So their commentary just leaves off 752, goes straight into 812. And I think their silence about it really is deafening, shouting to us that as most see it, this wasn't originally part of John's gospel, and we should not see it as equal to spirit-inspired scripture that we have all around it. So, maybe some question, a question, how do we know this wasn't originally part of John's gospel? Well, if I have a footnote in my Bible that says some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, others add the passage here, or after 736, or after 12, uh, 2125, or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. So, people put it in different places uh, depending on what manuscript you have. Secondly, if you're just reading through John's Gospel and you read chapter 7 and leave off at verse 52 and then you go to chapter 8, verse 12, it really flows just seamlessly. It really just, it looks like that was how John put it down. The flow of it just goes seamlessly. So you're not really missing a beat by leaving out this text. And then a third reason is this section, this story, is written in a style that John doesn't write in. Now, we're reading it in English and we don't see it real clearly. Um, the people who read Greek well would say this style is completely different than how John writes in the rest of the book. One example of that might be, you see there in verse 3, the scribes. Nowhere else in the book does John use the word scribe. This is the only place in this book. Now, just kind of an, an example. I have I've done some adjunct teaching at a university and a seminary. In one class, I'd assigned some 
smaller papers and then a, a major research paper as, as their big paper. Well, I had read, uh, one of the students, I had read his work on the shorter papers. And then I started reading the research paper that he turned in. Now, I knew his writing style from the shorter papers. It took me about two or three sentences in his big paper to realize this is not his writing. So I, I, I pasted like his, or copied and pasted his first paragraph, put it in Google, and I found the original paper that that had come from, and it was not his. He had taken it from that. Um, if we read Greek, we'd say this style is different from the Greek in John's gospel. So that's a, a third reason. And then the fourth reason we think this isn't part of John's original gospel is the manuscript evidence. So here's the main issue with this story being part of John's gospel. Or here's the main issue why it's not part of John's gospel. You see it says, in, probably in your Bible, the early, earliest manuscripts don't contain this. So we're talking about manuscripts. We mean the earliest copies. And I'm going to talk more about that in a few moments. But also, none of the early church fathers, and that's men who led the church in the early days and who would comment on Scripture, none of them included this account. They go from 752 to 812. We talk about the Eastern church fathers. None of them included it until the 10th century. That's almost a 1,000 years after John wrote. So here's the conclusion from Leon Morris. The textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. D.A. Carson says, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against him, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text in IV or to relegate it to a footnote, RSV. All right. So I've sketched some of this out for you. How then should we think about this story? Well, most commentators would agree that this event, the actual event, likely occurred. It probably was something that happened. Clearly people wanted to remember it, or they wouldn't have written it down and put it uh, in different places. So I think we should appreciate the story, but since it's not in the originals, we should not regard it as equal to spirit-inspired scripture. Okay, then we, then we need to figure out, well, what's written here, this story? Does it affirm the character of Jesus that we see throughout scripture? Does it go against it? And we're going to see that it goes along with Jesus' character. So, let me just step back for a minute. I recognize that this may be the first time for some of you that you have heard this time of comments on this story, and it may be jolting to you. I want to appreciate that, and I, I want to move you from fear of what might be said in this text to hope great faith in the scriptures that God has given us. Um, you don't have to leave today wondering, is, is all the Bible on thin ice? Like, is, is our evidence for all of it so tentative and weak that we could just question every bit of it as I've told you I want to bring light not heat clarity not confusion my my main goal for you today is to walk out of here 
more confident and the Bible in your hands, certainly not less. I think it's amazing that God gave us this word, that he preserved it through the years, that we have these 66 books that make up our Bible, and it is so accurate to what the original authors wrote, that it is breathed out by God. What you have here is God's revelation to us that you can build your life on and bank your eternity on. So I want you to leave confident. And I also want you to be reminded about the extravagant mercy of Jesus in your own life. Whatever background you came out of, we're all sinners. And if God has mercy on any of us, it is extravagant and glorious, and that is what we have. So as I've been reading and thinking uh, this week, one of the things that I pray for you is I've been uh, in my devotional time in Nehemiah, often I pray Nehemiah 8, 12 for you this week. When all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions, um, that part, you can do whatever on that, but here's the part I really prayed for you, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And I just hope you rejoice and the extravagant mercy of Jesus secured for us by the atonement of Christ at Calvary. And I also want you to be really confident in the Scriptures. So how can we be confident that the Bible that we have in our hands, that we have on our phones, is what the original authors wrote? Because here's the truth. We don't have any of the original copies of any of these 66 books. We don't have Jeremiah. We don't have Ephesians. We don't have Amos. We don't have Third John. In the original, in fact, in, in terms of what these guys wrote down. So since we don't have the originals, how can we know with any certainty that what we have in our Bibles are the actual words that were contained in the original? After all, as we're going through on Sunday night, this interpretation book, how we rightly uh, interpret Scripture, we've said that we need to rightly understand what the original authors meant when they wrote to their original audience. Well, how do we know what the original authors wrote if we don't have those copies? Now, author Kurt Eichenwald claims in a Newsweek article from December 23, 2014, that we have no idea what the original authors wrote. Here's what he said. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. Is he right? Is this author of Newsweek right? And I just say, no. Don't toss your Bibles because of one author in Newsweek. He made a wildly distorted now I want to talk about the history of manuscripts so that you come up with the opposite opinion of this author at Newsweek. And by the way, just, just an aside here, we're still printing Bibles. They're not printing Newsweek anymore, okay? They stopped doing that. You can find online, but they're not printing them. We're still printing a lot of Bibles, not we here, but the church, the, the people of God. Okay, so... 
we have a lot of manuscripts. I just want to, I'm indebted to some folks. I'm indebted to John Piper's sermon, the structure that he used that I, uh, I've kind of gone along with. And then Greg Gilbert wrote this book, it's a really short book, Why Trust the Bible, found it very helpful in terms of preparing what I want to do with what we're talking about, manuscripts. So what do we mean by manuscripts? What we mean is we mean copies. You say, wait a minute, isn't that what that Newsweek author uh, just argued about, that that's all we have is copies of copies of copies of copies? Okay. My dad was a big Johnny Cash fan. I became a big Johnny Cash fan. Maybe his greatest hit is I Walked the Line. That, that song was written in 1956. Well, apparently sometime in the 90s, Johnny Cash wrote out the lyrics to that song again on, on nice parchment paper, and they, they sold it at auction for like $1,600 plus. Well, that was 40 years later. How do we know what Johnny Cash wrote in the 90s is the same as what he wrote in 56? Well, we have copies. We have the song. We have it on the Internet. Well, they did in the 90s, but uh, we do now. So can we trust that those lyrics are the same? Yeah, we have lots of copies that match up. Right now, at your seat, you all can go online. Some of you might be doing it now. Some of you might be looking up Greg Gilbert, Why Trust the Bible, and you might buy it right now. It'll be at your house in two days. Or you can get it immediately as an e-book on your phone, right? If you need... To make a copy of a couple of pages, you could go to our office right now and copy a couple of pages of, of whatever book you're looking at. Well, think about the ancient world. There's no Amazon. There's no way to order books. And listen, there's no way to print books. Gutenberg and his printing press, they don't come along for another 1,400 or so years. The only way, the one way to have copies of books or letters was to hand write them. And for centuries, that's how the word of God was passed along. The Bible was hand copied. And church, we have got a wealth of those copies. Maybe 5,400 to 5,700 as it's estimated. So here's the next question. Is the existence of so many manuscripts an aid or an obstacle to knowing what the original said? Now, cynics would likely argue that it's an obstacle. If we have that many copies and if we have differences in them, we can't know what the original said. Might be an argument from, uh, from cynics or skeptics. Actually, according to Greg Gilbert, it's precisely the existence of those thousands of copies from all over the empire and with all their variations that allows us to reconstruct with a huge degree of confidence what the originals said. Well, let's walk through how that might be. The New Testament was written mid to late first century, and our earliest copies that we have start around 125 A.D. And maybe that jars you a little bit and you say well that's 40 to 75 years after what the original authors wrote that sounds like a problem that's kind of a long time until we compare it to other ancient manuscripts that people have no trouble in trusting 
Uh, Daniel adopt, uh, or adapted a, a chart from Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry from their website. And I, I, th- I thought it was just helpful for you to be able to see it. So do you believe that there was a person named Plato who lived and wrote? Likely you have never questioned that. Well, the gap between his writing and the earliest copy that we have, 1,200 years, and we have seven copies. Thucydides wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War. Now, you may not know that book, but you should say his name because it's just really fun to say. Thucydides. You want to say it with me? Thucydides. Fun to say. Um, The oldest copy we have from what he wrote 1,300 years later, and there are eight copies in existence of it. Julius Caesar, I think most of you would say, yeah, he, he lived. His Gallic Wars, the earliest copy, comes 1,000 years after his life, and we only have about 10 copies of those. You keep going. Tacitus, his an- histories and annals, 1,000 years after what he originally wrote, 20 copies. And then Homer with the Iliad. It comes 900, uh, sorry, 500 years later. There's 643 copies. That sounds like a lot until you get down to the New Testament, right, folks? Look at this. I just want you to see 40 to 7,500 years later, and we have 5,600 copies with an accuracy instead of 99.5. If you believe in the accuracy of any ancient documents, you should believe in the Bible. And let me also add this. In the ancient world, they valued books. Probably more than we do. I've got, I estimated the other day. I just kind of went through and estimated how many books are in my office. There's about 900 books in my office. That's just my estimation. We want a book. Like I said, we can order it. We can get an e-book. We can have them quickly. But we probably don't value them as much as ancient people would have. They would have treasured them, especially if you're hand copying them, when it takes weeks to hand copy them. And then how much more so, not just for any book, period, but when they really did believe this was breathed out by God. This is God's word to us. We're going to treasure it. We're going to attempt to copy it rightly. So lots of these copies would have lasted a long time. So our earliest ones that came, they may just be a copy of the original or a copy of the copy. Well, here's another objection that we might hear. But there are so many variants, and what they mean by that are differences in the manuscript. Some people estimate that there are 400,000 differences in these manuscripts. So we can't know which is accurate to the original. Let me just say that's baloney. Or that's bologna. You can spell baloney, B-A-L-O-N-E-Y, or as you all grew up with the commercial, B-O-L-O-G-N-A, right? We both know what we mean by that. It's baloney, right? But that would be considered a difference, a variant. Now, does that affect how you eat bologna? Not a bit. You still... Listen, we don't know what's in bologna. That is a mystery. But you still eat it. It doesn't affect your taste knowing which way it's spelled. But that could be a variant. Now think about how faithfully people would have tried to pass down text they believed was the revelation of God to us. They would have wanted to pass that on faithfully, 
word for word, letter for letter. God's word is inerrant. It is infallible, but human copyists aren't. So what would happen? We're talking about differences. Well, you might leave out a word. Or you might write the same word twice. Some of you, just, just think about when you're reading or when you're about to send a text or an email. You ever read back through it and like, oh, I'm, I'm glad I didn't send that. I've got this. Some of you may not care. It may not bother you. Uh, it bothers me, so I'll go back. So I want to send them well. So, so when I look back and there's an error, I want to correct it. Well, that's just in a, in a text. So this, you know, if you think thinking about co- copying the, the Gospel of John, 21 chapters, that's a lot. So those, those differences, those variants really come down to almost nothing most of the time. Okay, well, what about significant ones? We might label significant. Gilbert discusses one. I think we should see it. Matthew 5.22. Here are some of the different readings in different manuscripts, two of them. Do you, do you have that back there, Zach? One says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with this brother will be liable to judgment. Another manuscript says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with this brother without cause will be liable to judgment. So you see the difference there, right? That second one has two words added that the first one doesn't have, without cause. So which one is right? Did the second scribe add those words in the second one, or did the first scribe delete those words from the original? Now, we're not left wringing our hands, wondering which one. We can say with a great degree of certainty that the second author, or the second scribe there, said something like, whew, that is a really hard teaching that Jesus gave. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he may have thought, I need to soften this for the readers a little bit. And so he added those words without cause there. So we can be greatly confident that the first first rendering is the right one, according to what Matthew originally wrote, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, are there some difficulties? Sure. But as F.F. Bruce says, the variant readings about which any doubt remains of the New Testament affects no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. Church, you can have great confidence that the Bibles we have are in line with what the biblical authors wrote. Think about the number, 5,600 copies. Think about the accuracy in those manuscripts. Those should cause our confidence to increase, not decrease, in our English translations. You don't have to go home wondering, did Jesus really have that interaction with Nicodemus as it's laid out in John chapter 3? Did Jesus really teach this parable of the prodigal son that we have in Luke 15? You don't have to question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? We have absolute certainty from the hundreds of manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts. So, just because there is this story in John 7, 53 through 11, and the end of Mark, where those aren't in the earliest manuscripts, that doesn't affect our confidence in the Word of God. Let the evidence increase our confidence. 
We have truth on our side. All right, so now with that big picture look at manuscripts, covenants, and God's Word, I hope that's caused that first desire for the sermon to, to go forward, deepen our trust in the truthfulness of God's Word. Well, now we need to come back into the story. Of this woman caught in adultery that we said likely happened, wasn't part of John's original gospel, isn't equal to Spirit-inspired Scripture, and see if what we learn in it is supported by the rest of Scripture. So here's these religious leaders. They bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Now it's interesting they don't bring the man. This was likely a setup, right? They know they want to get Jesus. So they're trying to trap him. We see that very clearly. From verse 6, they said this to test him. So they said, here's, here's what Moses' law calls for. And then asked Jesus, and I read it this way because I want you to hear how emphatic the you is. So what do you say? He's on the spot. He's intentionally being put to the test. Now think about the options before Jesus. Oftentimes we've seen religious leaders try to trap him, right? They think they've got him, it looks airtight. If Jesus says to them, just leave her alone, their response will be, he doesn't value the Old Testament, he doesn't value God's law, he's okay with breaking it, he won't keep God's word, and they can undermine his credibility. Now if he says stone her, Number one, they're under Roman occupation. He get in trouble with Rome for maybe inciting riot or taking on capital punishment in and of himself. But just second, folks, it's, it's not a terribly popular thing to stone women in the middle of the street. We can be glad that it's not a very popular thing to do that. So if Jesus says stone her, this man who's known as a man of compassion, he'll likely lose any influence he has with the crowd. His accusers likely know that, likely know he'll, he won't condemn the woman, and so they bring this test in hopes of showing this guy's a lawbreaker. This guy doesn't care about God's law. Now let me just ask you, is the woman guilty? Absolutely. She was caught in the act. She is guilty. She has no defense. Does the law command her death? Well, likely. I mean, depending on the situation, it may not demand the method of stoning. But either way, she's guilty and deserving of death. Is that what she gets? No, she isn't condemned. This story doesn't conclude with a dead woman in the street at the hands of those stoning her. It's not how it ends. John Piper says the most remarkable point of this story is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses, changes its appointed punishment, and reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. You may not think you identify with this woman. But here's the reality. Every one of us are lawbreakers. Every one of us stood guilty before a holy God based on our sinful choices. 
Paul in writing in Romans chapter 3 is showing that Gentiles and Jews, they're all guilty before God. And he ends in, in this section, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19 or 20, with just Old Testament verse after Old Testament verse showing that we are all guilty. In just a few of these verses, uh, 10, 11, and 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If you want to stand before God with the defense that I'm pretty good, Paul has torn that down for us in Romans 3. The one way we stand before God is on the merit and righteousness of Christ no other way. So what's the consequence for this type of life that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves? Well, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But the guilty woman didn't die in this story. No one condemned her to death. So how could Jesus remove that punishment from her that the law called for? And that the religious leader would have been fine if it happened. Even some of the men standing around seemed to be okay with it for a while. I'm not going to try to solve for you what Jesus wrote on the ground or drew on the ground. Plenty of ink has been spilled in that. I don't know. We have our ideas. But here's what I know from this story, at least, that he says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He seems to be pushing back on their idea that they are righteous themselves. Seems to be trying to take the scales off their eyes where they are puffing out their chest, straightening their ties, fixing their lapels and saying, we're really good. We are law keepers. We could stand before God on our merit. We don't need the grace of God. Even they are lawbreakers. And they slowly trickle out. And Jesus is left alone with this woman. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. How could he let her off the hook? Isn't he breaking God's law? Doesn't he desire righteousness? Shouldn't this woman be punished? How could God excuse, or how could Jesus excuse this woman breaking God's law. Here's the thing, church. Jesus is no lawbreaker. He is the law fulfiller. He fulfills the law. And in fact, he corrects their wrong idea about God's law. We saw this in chapter 7. Maybe that's why this story gets, gets placed here. Back in 7.23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Well, are they upset? They're upset that Jesus showed mercy on this man on the Sabbath. Their hearts are absent of love. Jesus is showing us God's mercy is extravagant. Jesus is in his very life is fulfilling God's law. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, we see this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who loved this woman? Wasn't the scribes and the Pharisees. Wasn't really the crowd. Jesus loves her. But I keep coming back. She's so guilty. And she's standing before the only one who knew no sin and could rightly condemn her. So that, that's what's going on here. She's guilty, deserving of death. Jesus doesn't condemn her. Why? Well, this is a great opportunity for us to go back into John's gospel. And what have we seen about Jesus in John's gospel? Hear John 3.17 for us. For God did not send his son into the world to, hear that language, condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In Jesus' first coming, he comes to save, not condemn. Now that's John 3.17. Just verses before that, we say, man, how could Jesus do that? Well, just verses before that is Jesus saying the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he means the Son of Man must go to the cross. So not only is Jesus not a lawbreaker, the sinless one is going to die on the cross taking the punishment that lawbreakers deserved. He's taking our death. So in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the one and only law keeper was condemned as a law breaker so that us law breakers can receive no condemnation. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, it doesn't say there is therefore now 1% condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, your worst sins won't condemn you. Christ took them. He died in the place of lawbreakers so that lawbreakers have no condemnation. Now, you may argue one last point, but this woman, she hasn't said anything. She hasn't put her faith in Jesus. How can we say she's in Christ? I don't want you to think Jesus' lack of condemnation for this woman makes him soft on sin. Jesus knows sin is our greatest enemy. He never condones our sin. He didn't tell the woman, neither do I condemn you. Have a great day. That's not what he said to her, is it? He gave her a directive. Sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Go, stop your continual sinning. He invites her to leave her sin and look to him. And church, isn't that what repentance is? It's turning away from our sins and turning to Jesus. So I think we can see from other areas of Scripture that what is taught here is confirmed 
and we can rest in the mercy of God. We learn in this story that our salvation and God's declaration of no condemnation for us depend totally on the work of Jesus. It is completely dependent on God's grace. Now, we see in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, just keep on sinning, stay in your sin. He says, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? A transformation has to take place when we turn from our sin to our Lord. Whatever your background is, wherever you've been, whatever your sin that makes you undeniably guilty before God, the grace of God is enough. We see that in this woman. We saw that in what was read from Luke 7, 36 through 50 about another sinful woman. Our Savior took our punishment for us. He died on the cross so that we could be not condemned, but we could be saved. And when we turn from our sin to our Lord, the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.17 is true in us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I get to look out at a lot of people, a lot of new creations in this congregation this morning. Different sins, different lives, same grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ. We should rejoice. And if that hasn't happened in your life yet, today I hope you'll turn to Jesus. Today I hope we have the desired results of the sermon. That you've deepened your trust in the truthfulness of God's word. And that you're delighting in the mercy of God that doesn't condemn us, but saved us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Thank you for your spirit's work. Lord, I pray that you will take this sermon, what we've said today, Lord, and bring good out of it, that you would work in the heart of everyone listening, whether that's in this room, by Facebook, or on the radio, that truly, Lord, we would deepen our trust in the truthfulness of your word, and Lord, that we would delight in mercy. May there be not one who leaves today thinking, I'm a good person, I can stand before God on my own merit. God, may that be melted away from our hearts and may we say my righteousness is as filthy rags but the righteousness of Christ covers every sin God may we lean on Jesus may we trust in his grace we entrust this to you in Jesus name Amen